So, good morning. So, we'll be continuing our study through Leviticus, as you can see. Um, we're going through chapter 23 today, where we are introduced to the feasts of the Lord. Uh, so, before we get started, I'll go ahead and open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you today, Lord, recognizing the privilege and blessing it is to study your word. Uh, we pray that as we do that, you would open our hearts and minds to receive the truth that you would have for us. Lord, we ask for your guidance, that we may understand the significance of these ancient celebrations, Lord, we're about to go through, and how they point to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. May our study today deepen our understanding of your faithfulness and increase our gratitude for the salvation provided through Jesus. Father, we also recognize that your word is living and active, and we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and lead us to a deeper commitment, Lord, to live in obedience to your will. I pray that you would bless our time and that it would be glorifying to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we'll be going through Leviticus chapter 23, uh, giving us an overview of the appointed feasts of the Lord. So at the heart of the chapter is this concept, you'll see, of sacred time, emphasizing the sanctity of specific days and seasons. Uh, highlighting the importance of setting aside time for worship, reflection, um, and communal gathering, stressing that all of life is to be lived in the presence of God. So although it may look different today uh, because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that's every bit as important for us as it was to the Israelites, that, that notion of rest. chapter begins by outlining the weekly Sabbath, a uh, day of rest and reflection that was set apart as holy. And we've seen in previous chapters, the Sabbath um, was served as a reminder of God's creative work and his deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So by observ- observing the Sabbath, the Israelites acknowledged their dependence on God and their need for spiritual renewal. Such rest is precisely why the Lord prescribed the feast revealed here in this chapter. He wanted his people to come apart from their regular routine, and then find their rest in him. He also wanted them to yearn for a greater rest, one that would only come with the advent of God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So moving beyond the Sabbath, uh, we'll see details on the annual feasts that punctuated the Israelite calendar. These feasts were not merely cultural events, but served as a means of preserving and passing on the memory of God's saving acts, particularly the deliverance of, from Egypt and the establishment of the covenant at Sinai. So these appointment, appointed feasts provided a framework for the Israelites to express their gratitude and devotion to God. Uh, they were occasions for communal worship, sacrifice, and celebration, reflecting the Israelites' acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and faithfulness, reinforcing the idea that God was ultimately involved every day in the lives of his people. So they also had prophetic significance as well, pointing forward to the redemptive work of God in the future, foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. For example, the Feast of Passover prefigured the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, whose blood brings about the deliverance from sin and death. So we have in Leviticus 23 a multifaceted overview 
highlighting the interconnectedness of sacred time, redemptive history, communal worship, and a prophetic anticipation within the religious calendar of ancient Israel. So as Christians today, it's good to understand these feasts, um, to read about them, to learn about them, giving us appreciation for the continuity of God's plan in redemption and the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which it all points to. So this chapter not only provides a calendar for worship, but also through symbolism, points to the personal work of Christ, serving as a reminder of God's faithfulness and his sovereign plan in the redemption of his people. So in all that, uh, what we'll see is this need for God's people ultimately to rest. Recent chapters we've heavily have been heavily emphasized on the duties of the priesthood. Here, the attention shifts almost entirely to the congregation, with particular respect to the responsibility of rest. Another thing we see is that these times of rest are referred to as the feasts of the Lord. And the Lord said quite clearly, these are my feasts. These are not Israel's feasts. They belong to God, and he's the one that ordained them. The resting, therefore, is to be God-centered. A time for God's people to reflect together, to rejoice together, remember together, and rejuvenate together as they reverently assemble together. So I'll go ahead and start. Um, I'm going to go through verses 1 through 22. Over there. So Leviticus 23. Beginning verse 1, says, The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight in the Lord's Passover. Then on the fifteenth day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but for, the seven, but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. The priest. We shall, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. And on the day of the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offerings shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering a fourth of a hin of wine, until the same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, in all of your dwelling places. You shall also count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. 
You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring it from your dwelling places, two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. Then shall be, they shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Also with the bread you shall present seven one-year male lambs with def- without defect and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be burnt offerings to the Lord. With their grain offering and their drink offerings and an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord, you shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On the same day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all of your dwelling places throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So the chapter begins by emphasizing the sacredness and significance of these appointed times stating that they are appointed feasts of the Lord, which the people of Israel are to proclaim as holy convocations. Chapters structured around two main seasons, spring and the fall. Spring feasts, which were just outlined in verses 1 through 22, include the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, symbolizing the redemptive work of Christ. These feasts find the fulfillment in death, burial, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, respectively. They serve as a prophetic foreshadowing foreshadowing of the coming of Messiah and the establishment of the church. So the fundamental point of these feasts is that the people were to rest at the seven prescribed times of year, and they were prescribed sabbaticals. This reference to the Sabbath at the very beginning of the chapter introduces the sabbatical principle undergirding the entire chapter. Sabbath, as prescribed in the Old Testament, is a day of rest and reflection, set apart by God as a holy day. It's a time to cease from ordinary labor, to contemplate the divine, and to focus on spiritual renewal. The seventh day, following six days of creative activity, symbolizes completion and divine rest, and this pattern mirrors God's own rest after the work of creation emphasizing the sacredness of rest and this rhythm of work and then renewal. So as we know, the principles underlying the Sabbath have enduring relevance for us today, sort of in this fast-paced modern world characterized by ceaseless activity and productivity. So the Sabbath stands as a countercultural symbol to trust God and for his provision and a reminder of the need for spiritual and emotional and physical renewal. So for us... By observing a day of rest and worship, we acknowledge our dependence on God. So while the specifics of the Sabbath observance look different today, the essence of the Sabbath Sabbath remains vital. We honor the Sabbath by setting aside a specific day for rest, spiritual reflection, and of worship. So the Sabbath, as delineated here in 23, and having utmost utmost importance for Israel, At that time, it just continues for us as it holds a timeless principle of rest and reflection. As such, the observance 
of the Sabbath remains as, foundation, as a foundational practice that enriches and sustains faith of believers in every generation. So the first of the spring feasts that was just outlined, scheduled and to be observed at the beginning of the agricultural year, is the Passover. Passover occupied a pivotal place in the religious life of ancient Israel, instituted by God himself, commemorating his deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. As the first of the annual appointed feast outlined in this chapter, the Passover vividly displays God's covenant faithfulness towards his redeemed nation. The Passover marked the day that God established his covenant relationship with his people in Israel, his miraculous judgments on Egypt, and the subsequent redemption of his people demonstrated his faithful covenant commitment. As a lasting sign of this relationship, God commanded Israel to memorialize their deliverance each year by observing the Passover feast. It commemorated God's mighty deliverance of Israel from slavery and death in Egypt, and though through the sacrificial death of an unblemished lamb and the application of blood, God spared the firstborn sons in each Israelite household. So this dramatic deliverance allowed the nation to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, and the annual Passover feast provided an opportunity for God's people to reflect upon this gracious redemption. So the observance of the Passover centered around the sacrifice of an unblemished male lamb, or goat, and the animal represented the sacrificial substitute that died in place of the firstborn. The lamb also foreshadowed the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who would offer himself as an unblemished sacrifice to deliver his people from sin and death. So participants ate the Passover meal with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of Israel's Slavery, while the unleavened bread represented the haste in which they departed Egypt. Both elements heightened remembrance of God's salvation. Passover bore rich theological symbolism for the nation of Israel. As a memorial of God's covenant faithfulness and deliverance, it testified to several profound spiritual truths. First, we have the Passover spoke of the high cost of Israel's redemption. Freedom from slavery required death, of an unblemished animal and the application of its blood. This foreshadowed, again, Christ's ultimate sacrifice to his people for his pe- to his people from the bondage of sin. Only through his substitutionary death and shed blood could salvation be secured. And second, the Passover pointed to the necessity of individual faith. Each household had to apply the lamb's blood to their own home to receive the protection. Similarly, sinners must personally apply Christ's blood through faith to receive forgiveness and redemption. His saving work must be individually appropriated. And third, the Passover anticipated the final judgment of God. The Lord used the death angel to inflict his righteous judgment against Israel, I mean, sorry, Egypt, and all in Israel were equally deserving of the judgment, but graciously passed over through the applied blood. The Passover foretold Christ's work. In turning aside God's judgment, from guilty sinners who take refuge in him. And finally, the Passover festivities fostered unity among God's people. As whole families participated in the covenant meal together, it strengthened community, awareness of their shared identity and common salvation as God's chosen nation. 
Passover feast was celebrated annually on the 14th day of the month of Israel's religious calendar. Each family carefully selected an unblemished lamb or goat on the 10th day and set it apart for a sacrifice. So on the evening of the 14th, participants slaughtered the Passover lambs as the sun began to set and the priest offered the blood on the altar while each family roasted its animal over fire and ate it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Anything uneaten had to be burned before morning. As the people feasted, they reminisced over God's gracious deliverance in ages past. This would stimulate questions from the children, allowing parents to rehearse the Exodus redemption. In this way, the Passover meal fostered spiritual unity, identity, and remembrance in Israel for generations. The traditions surrounding the feast also foreshadowed the saving work of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. So atonement lies at the heart of the Passover as it commemorates the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the sacrificial lamb, just as the Israelites were spared from judgment of God by the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, we are saved from the penalty of sin by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. The Passover underscores the, the theme of freedom in Christ. The Israelites were liberated from the bondage of slavery, and this freedom resonates with the spiritual freedom we receive through Christ. In Christ, we are set free from the power of sin, the tyranny of the enemy, and fear of death. Just as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea for freedom, they have passed from death to life through the union. We have passed through death to life through our union with Christ. The Passover serves as an illustration of liberty and deliverance that we experience as children of God. So again, the sacrificial lamb of the Passover points to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The liberation of the Israelites from slavery mirrors our own release from bondage to sin and the world. As we mediate the Passover, we should be reminded of the immeasurable love and grace of God who provided the ultimate sacrifice for our atonement and granted us freedom in Christ. Any uh, questions, comments about the Passover? Okay, moving on, 23.6 speaks of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So after their dramatic exodus redemption, God established a powerful object lesson for Israel's ongoing spiritual life, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Coming just days after the Passover, this seven-day feast served as an annual reminder for God's people to walk in purity before him, removing sinful influences from their lives. This feast lasted for seven days following the Passover by linking it directly to the commemoration of Israel's redemption from Egypt. God connected the meaning of the two feasts. Deliverance leads to holy living. During these seven days, God commanded Israel to remove all leaven, a symbol of sin or impurity, from their households for one week, Uh, They were to eat bread made without leaven as a spiritual object lesson. Just as they swept out spiritual leaven, so God wanted to leave leaven the malice and wickedness cleansed from their lives. The Feast of Unleavened Bread held spiritual meaning for the nation of Israel in several key ways. The first, it's a reminder of God's holiness and their called-out status as a people. 
The strict prohibition against leaven reflected the Lord's desire for his people to walk in purity and obedience to him. So after delivering them through the blood of the Passover lamb, he expected them to remove the malice and wickedness from their lives. Second, the feast taught Israel complete dependence on God's grace. But called immoral purity, the Israelites were incapable of perfect obedience in their own finite power. As they made efforts to exclude, exclude leaven, they learned to rely on divine grace to sanctify them. Ultimately, the removal of sin's influence came through, as we know, Christ's finished work. So finally, the feast foreshadowed believers' position in Christ. As saved people, we have a new unleavened identity no longer dominated by sin's power. We are new creations called to live consistent with our redeemed status by resisting sin. So the week following Passover brought significant changes to normal household routines and for Israelites, for the Israelites and families conducted thorough house cleanings to eliminate all leaven as the feast began. Throughout the week, they gathered as households and to eat unleavened bread as a central feature of their diet. So as families participated in various aspects surrounding this feast, parents had the opportunity to express spiritual truth upon younger generations, and they explained the meaning behind eliminating leaven and feasting on unleavened bread. Children learned the importance of separating from sin's influence in light of God's redemption. This unique week, therefore, offered lessons on the need for personal holiness. So as said, leaven in the biblical context symbolizes sin and impurity. It represents that which puffs up and corrupts, spreading its influence throughout the whole. So as the Apostle Paul admonishes in the Corinthian church, it says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We too must heed the call to remove the leaven of sin from our lives, for we have been sanctified by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just as the Israelites meticulously searched their homes for any trace of leaven, so too must we search our hearts and minds, allowing for the light of God's truth to expose and eradicate every sinful inclination. Feast of Unleavened Bread provides an illustration of the need for sincerity in our Christian walk. As the Israelites partook of unleavened bread, for seven days they were reminded of their call to walk in sincerity and truth. Likewise, we're called to live lives of authenticity and integrity, unadulterated by the hypocrisy and deceit that characterize the ways of the world. So just as the Apostle Paul continues to exhort in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, the next verse, it says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We should also learn from this that the evidence that we have been delivered from sin is an ongoing removal of corruption from our lives. If there's no such removal, then there's probably been no redemption. Any questions on unleavened, unleavened bread? That's it. Yes? Um, I've always wondered, um, 
their Passover that day and then the next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is for a year. Is there a time? Time between those two. I know what happens directly after as far as days. I'm not sure. I mean, I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's immediate, like right after it falls right into each other. Else? Okay, verse 9 starts with the Feast of First Fruits. So on the Sunday after Passover, Israel observed another feast, the Feast of First Fruits. This agricultural festival featured a joyful ceremony to offer the first portion of barley harvest to the Lord. So as a display of gratitude and continued trust in God's provision, First fruits strengthened awareness of first fruitfulness stemming from the Lord. The people were to bring the sheaf from the initial barley crop as an offering to the Lord. This acknowledged him as the true giver of agricultural abundance. And the priest waved the sheaf before the Lord as a symbolic gesture to demonstrate Israel's presentation of the entire harvest to their covenant with God. And they recognized all crops originated from his hand. Feast of First Fruits held agricultural theological significance for Israel. Agriculturally, the first fruit sheaf represented promise and hope of an abundance in the barley harvest. Offering the initial portion to God demonstrated both gratitude for his provision and trust in continued sustenance for the nation. And theologically, first fruits testified to the life stemming from death, occurring in conjunction with the Passover. Commemoration of Israel's redemption from Israel, this feast reminded the people of God's power to bring forth spiritual fruit, even from the death-like slavery. The resurrection of Christ fulfilled this typology for us, uh, since his conquest over death heralded new life for all who trust in him. This presentation of the first fruit sheaf brought festive celebration to Israel. So as a community, they gathered at the temple on the Sunday after Passover to witness the priest waved the offering before the Lord. Musicians played as he ceremoniously presented the pledge of the full barley crop yet to be reaped. And the accompanying burnt offering turned the people's attention to the Lord as the provider of agricultural fruitfulness. Together they rejoiced and shared a meal, resting from ordinary work to reflect on God's faithfulness. This feast fostered community unity an identity rooted in their covenant relationship to God who brought abundance even from former slavery. So this marked the beginning of the harvest season, and it required the Israelites to present to the Lord a sheaf of the first fruits of their harvest. This act was an expression of gratitude for God and his provision and a recognition of his sovereignty over their lives and livelihoods. So in a similar way, we are called to live lives characterized by gratitude. We are to be ever mindful of the blessings that the Lord's given us and to express our thankfulness you know, through the lives of worship and service. And just as the Israelites offered their first fruits of their harvest, we are to offer fruits, first fruits of our hearts, our love, our resources, our time. We offer these as a fragrant offering to the Lord. The offering of the first fruits was an act of consecration, acknowledging that all good things come from the Lord. Likewise, as Christians, we're called to dedicate ourselves wholly to God, offering our very lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. Our dedication is not merely a one-time event, but daily, 
ongoing surrender of our will to his, seeking to honor him in all that we do. So just as the first fruit offering was a pledge of fullness of the harvest to come, our dedication to God anticipates the abundance of spiritual fruit that he desires to produce in and through us. We are to live in eager expectation of the harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. says this in James 3. Any comments, questions on first fruits before I move on? Yeah. I think it's a physical wave. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's more just symbolic, just to kind of wave it in front. Um, yeah, before the sacrifice. I think it's more just as a could be wrong, but as a presentation, just to make note of it. Anything else on the first fruits? Yeah. What's that? It's shortly after. Um, did I even put that down? I'm not sure. These are happening almost in succession, but yeah. So it'll be. It, you know, it's it's still early because it is the first. So yeah, there's probably not a huge harvest, but the first one, they're ready to go. Yeah. So I think that exactly. I think you said that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the timing was, but it would have to be. It would be dependent on when those first fruits came in the harvest. So whenever that was, that would be the timing. Okay, next in verse uh, 15. So we'll go over the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. So 50 days after first fruits, Israel observed the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Following seven weeks of eager anticipation, this harvest festival marked the culmination of the wheat harvest. So with joy and gratitude, the people presented an offering to God from the year's yield. The sweet feast marked the culmination of the spring wheat harvest. Following seven weeks of reaping before the barley and wheat crops, Israel commemorated God's provision with this agricultural, agricultural festival. The people were to present a voluntary offering of two loaves baked with yeast for the first wheat harvest. And these wave offerings served as a symbolic pledge to God as the giver of the year's yield. It represented the blessings of harvest provision. After patient toiling and waiting, Israel rejoiced in God's faithfulness to grant culmination after the labor of sowing and reaping. For us, the Feast of Weeks takes an added significance in light of the events recorded in the New Testament. 
In the book of Acts, we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which occurred 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. This event fulfilled the promise Jesus made to his disciples regarding the coming of the Holy Spirit, who would empower them for their mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So the Feast of the Weeks, or Pentecost, holds a special relevance for us as it points to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers and the church. So this celebration serves as a reminder of the Spirit's ongoing work, empowering, guiding, and equipping believers for the mission of advancing God's kingdom. Next is the Feast of Trumpets. Yeah, go ahead. One. Yeah, I think for that, I would, I could be wrong. I think it's just symbolic of the first one, specifically to lay out because of, of that specific festival. With this one, I think it's just okay. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, his question is, why before would we exclude leaven, and now leaven's okay? That's his question. And, yeah, I'm not sure. I want to just dismiss it as sort of a prescription, <laughs> how God prescribed it. Um, but the reason being, I'm probably not clear about What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? No clue? Yeah, probably not always, because here we see they're using it, but I think the first time leaven did represent that. Yeah. 
So we're thinking maybe it's just more uh, for that specific festival for what the Lord wanted to say with that. And, Yeah. Anything else? So the young people use leaven to make the big bread. Yes. <laughs> so next we enter into the fall feasts. And starting in the first 23, so the fall feast including the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they point to the culmination of God's redemptive plan. They foreshadow the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. So the structure of Leviticus 23 reflects this divine order, the beginning and now this second part, of the purpose of God's redemptive history from this first coming of Christ. And now it's going to cover the coming of his glorious return. So verses 23 through 44 speak of three feasts that occurred in the autumn, and as an overriding principle, they teach us that God is faithful, and these feasts included both the most solemn of the seven feasts and the most joyful of them. All three of them occurred in the seventh month. I'll go ahead and read those passages. So starting in verse 23, it says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak, to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder, by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do, not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, it shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this day, on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does not does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all of your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls. On the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings. Each day's matter on its own day. Besides, those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all of your votive and free will offerings, you shall, which you give to the Lord, on exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest 
on the first day and to rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take your take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days, and all the native-born Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So here we see, so in the seventh month of Israel's religious calendar commenced, so did a new season of appointed feasts. The Feast of Trumpets initiated this special period by summoning the people to sober reflection through the sacred assembly. Marked by the trumpet attention commanding blast, this feast called Israel to renew their consecration to the Lord. It was to be a Sabbath day of sacred assembly, regardless of the weekly cycle. The people were to join at the tabernacle as a holy convocation. So this blowing of the trumpets was a hallmark to this feast. The trumpet blast summoned attention, signaling a call to reflect, rededicate oneself to the Lord. The stirring blast of the trumpet marked this feast by summoning their attention to reflect on the, and <clears throat> to reflect and return to the Lord. The feast highlighted the sovereignty of God over time, and as it commenced the seventh month of holy days, it called Israel to renew their covenant pledge of obedience as the Lord's chosen nation. But further, the feast came at the end of the agricultural year. After successive seasons of barley harvest, wheat harvest, and now the final gathering, ingathering of grapes and figs and olives, the people had more time on their hands, and so it was a wonderful opportunity for reflection and for self-examination. It was therefore a great time for spiritual renewal. Moreover, it prefigured the final ingathering of God's people when Christ returns. The trumpet sound signaled the eschatological harvest when the redeemed will gather to worship the Lord forever. So as the temple, at the temple, the priest blew two silver trumpets used exclusively for sacred purposes. The familiar alarm awakened the nation's attention to consider their spiritual state, all engaged in sacrifices and solemn meals, reflecting on God's impending judgment and their need to repent. The blowing of the trumpets during this Feast of Trumpets was a clarion call, signaling the beginning of a sacred season of preparation and anticipation. So this signifies the future gathering of God's people. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonian believers, speaks of the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead rising first. This gathering, akin to the gathering of the Israelites during the Feast of Trumpets, will be a moment of joy and a triumph for all who are found in Christ. Moving along to verse 26, we see the, the Day of Atonement. So ten days after the Feast of Trumpets commenced the most sacred occasion on Israel's calendar, the Day of Atonement. As the one day of year, the high, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, solemn day marked collective confession and cleansing from the nation's sins before God. First, it was the most holy day of the year for spiritual purification. Special Sabbath restrictions highlighted its gravity 
and the people were to reflect and renounce sin as the priest made atonement before God. As the single day requiring blood sacrifices for cleansing God's dwelling place, this feast displayed several spiritual truths. First, it highlighted the reality of separation between a holy God and sinful people. The restricted access to God's presence reinforced human inability to approach him without blood atonement. Additionally, it pointed to substitutionary sacrifice as the only remedy for impurity and transgression before the Lord. So through most of the feasts, though most of these feasts emphasize the sabbatical principle, uh, this was particularly the case with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement made it very clear that man's only hope for being reconciled to God hinges on his work, God's work. So this is a very real sense in which the Day of Atonement is continuous in our weekly calendar as well. Uh, that is, each Lord's Day we corporately reflect and remember and reaffirm the truth that Jesus Christ has entered once and for all, within the veil to make concession for his people. And therefore, we corporately and reverently rejoice when we have been reconciled to God through his Son. And finally, the nation reconciliation prefigured eternal peace with God through Messiah's sacrifice. The Day of Atonement offered this glimpse of the coming day when all God's people will abide joyfully with him. Questions on the Day of Atonement? Okay, in 33, talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. So after the solemn Day of Atonement, the joyful, joyous Feast of Booths reminded, Tabernacles is Booths, reminded Israel of God's enduring care and presence for his people. For seven festive days, families camped together in temporary shelters to commemorate God's provision in the wilderness and meals and offerings expressed gratitude for a plentiful harvest. So for the whole week, families dwelled in temporary booths as a reminder of God sheltering Israel during the wilderness wanderings after the Exodus redemption. So when they dwelled in temporary shelters, connected, um, when they did this, it connected Israel to God's faithful presence protecting their ancestors for 40 years. The feast displayed his enduring covenant, committed to this to be with his people. Its timing after the autumn harvest also nurtured awareness of God's faithful provision year after year. These would be community meals and ceremonies alluding to the coming messianic banquet with people from all nations gathered under Christ's joyful reign. Feast of Booths offered a glimpse of that future glory. So just as the children of Israel commanded to dwell in temporary booths, Feast of Tabernacles, we are called to acknowledge that our earthly lives are but temporary dwellings. The Apostle Peter describes our earthly bodies as tents in Second Peter, emphasizing that our time on earth is fleeting and transitory. So as followers of Christ, we are encouraged to adopt this perspective that transcends this temporal and fixates on the eternal. So just as the Israelites, in recognizing impermanence, of our earthly existence, we are prompted to focus on the eternal truths of God's promises. Our ultimate citizenship lies not in the world, but in the heavenly realms. Just as the Israelites look forward to the promised land, we eagerly anticipate our eternal inheritance in the presence of the Lord.
So the festivals of the Old Testament find their f- fulfillment, as I've said a few times, in Jesus Christ. We find all these festivals point to Christ. And as his followers, we now celebrate the spiritual truths embodied in him. So as we reflect on these truths that we read here in this chapter, may our, our hearts should be stirred for a worship as theirs was, but in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think the most important lesson that we can glean from this chapter as Christians is our only, our only hope of the final and true rest is found in Christ. Of course, these holy days all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread point us to Christ as our sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who continues to save us from our sins. First fruits points us to Christ as the first fruits from the dead. Pentecost points us to Christ in the, the hope of his hope and glory. Trumpets points us to Christ as the one who is faithful led us far and will continue to provide for us. So again, these holy days, the overriding emphasis is rest. God was teaching his people that they were restless and they needed, to be, they needed the spiritual rest that only he could give. So I think in the midst of the current, our current trials and tribulations, we can look forward to the fulfillment of the fall feast, the return of our Lord, his righteous judgment, and his eternal reign. For in Christ, these feasts have found their ultimate fulfillment, and in Christ, the calendar of God is completed. In Christ, we find our salvation, our sanctification, and glorification. I think I'm out of time. Sorry, kind of rifled through the end there. But any questions on that before I pray? Nothing at all. All right. Let me close our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful for the time uh, that we spent uh, delving into your word today, particularly the intricate details of the feast and these holy convocations, Lord, outlined in this chapter. Uh, We acknowledge that these ancient rituals foreshadow um, the ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who is the substance of all these shadows. And we thank you for the richness of your word, the depth of your truth. We pray um, that you would ingrain these principles in our hearts. Lord, just help us to remember that you are God, and a God who keeps his promises, and that your faithfulness endures all generations. Father, just uh, pray that as we go from this place, may we carry uh, with us a renewed reverence for your holiness, a deep sense of gratitude for your redemptive work, and a fresh understanding of the significance of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.